Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Earlier this month, a 45-second video was shown at an elementary school in Granby, Connecticut. It featured kids talking about what Pride Month means to them. Universal Kids celebrates Pride Month. What Pride means to me is nobody can tell you what to do. I have dolls. I love my dolls. Boys can play with dolls, too. I have two moms, and I call them Mommy and Mama. What Pride means to me is just being myself and standing up for what I believe in. Pride means you should be able to be free. All my life, I never really felt like a boy, and I don't really feel like a girl, so I'd rather be both. Pride means a person could be whoever they want to be in their heart. The fact that I could say that I like to be called a boy makes me feel happy inside. Pride to me is my two dads. If you have two moms, or if you have one dad or one mom. It's not like, oh, this or that. It's what makes people happy. Happy Pride Month! Pride is universal. Be authentically you. Some Granby parents say they should have been informed that it was going to be presented in the classroom. Others say they support the message of inclusivity that the video sends. Today, we'll unpack this conversation and talk about what LGBTQ studies curriculum at the secondary and elementary school level might look like. And later, author and teacher Chastin Budajez joins us. He is the husband of Transportation Secretary Pete Budajez, and we'll talk about his new book, I Have to Tell You Something for Young Adults. Adults. But first, we have sophomore James Crocker at Granby Memorial High School, who's organizing the town's first ever Pride event, and he joins me now in studio. James, welcome to Where We Live. Hi, Catherine. I'm glad to be here. And for our callers, you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, James, what was your first reaction when you heard about what was happening with the video in your town? Yeah, I mean, I feel like my first reaction was mainly, like, what is the big deal? Like, I watched it expecting it to be, like, a very um, bad video, whether it was um, nudity or something bad like that. That's what I expected, judging by the outroar. And then I saw it, and I'm like, this is just kids being like, be yourself. Um, Be authentically you. Represent yourself. Don't let anyone stop you. And, you know, it's okay to be different. And... So when I saw that video, I'm like, you know, this is a video I could have used as a member of the community when I was younger. I feel like this is a really good message. And I'm just not um, understanding um, the negative effects of it. And I feel like the overwhelming majority agreed with me. Um, but the main issue were the more outspoken members of the community. They were going on media tours. They're on Fox and Friends. They were getting the word out. And I mean, I think we all know that one father, you know, threatened to go to Florida, take his kids out of the school. And, you know, it's just I find it really interesting when that one person is promoting their $100 a month subscription and not following up on any of the claims he said. And are you hearing from what your, you know, your friends and your family or your fellow classmates, you know, what are you hearing from from them? Are you hearing the same things or 
Are you kind of getting the same vibe from them, or what has that been like for you? Yeah, I mean, I would say um, my fellow classmates really aren't too aware of this issue. They might have heard it discussed at dinner or seen it on the news and been like, oh my God, like we're famous. But um, other than that, they really don't care too much because they understand, you know, what pride means to them, that it's important to celebrate it. And um, at my high school, we have the Safe Club, which is the like, um, I honestly don't remember what it stands for. Um, but it's like it's basically like the GSA club. Um, but they just changed it a little bit. <laughs> Can you tell people what the GSA club for those who might not know what it is? Yeah, so um the GSA club, um, I believe it stands for the Gay Straight Alliance. Um, it's a club that's pretty um widespread. It was at my old high school. Um and this is like basically like a form of it. So it's a really ge- really great place for um students who may identify as LGBTQIA two S plus or who um may have friends who are and it's I would say it's a really accepting place. And it's a good place also just for allies to learn about the history of it. And from everything that we were just talking about and the video that was in the classrooms, it sparked you to want to do something. So tell us about you organizing Granby Pride. Why was this so important for you to do? Yeah, so I mean, the first search result when you searched up Granby, Connecticut, was a Fox and Friends interview with a father complaining about this video. And it just made me realize, you know, this could deter potential new residents. Um, People may see Granby as not accepting, and this is not the image Granby wants. This is not the image I want to project for them. And so I immediately thought, like, I've done this before. I can do this again. So back in 2020, um, my sister Stephanie Crocker and I um, ran a Black Lives Matter protest um, at my old town, East Granby. And so I was like, you know, it wasn't too hard then. It's definitely going to be harder now. We're going to face backlash. Um, It's a bigger town. We're going to have more attendees. Um, But, like, we can do this. So it all started with, like, a general inquiry um, in the Granby Living Facebook group. And so I was like, hey, like, I'm interested in possibly doing an event, maybe a rally, um, just to sort of spread awareness about this and sort of show that, you know, love is love. Um, You're seen, you're heard, and you're accepted. And what has that process been like? Do you have an idea when the event will happen? And are your friends all like excited to do it together? You know, what 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 is the event looking like so far? Yeah, so honestly, it's looking um, really successful. I'm really excited. I feel like there's going to be a big outcome. So um, right from the start, I knew we had to have it um, in June, mainly just because, um, first of all, that's Pride Month. Um, And I want it as soon as possible, but also with as much time as possible, because the day I started planning was June 8th, which is very, um, I would say, uncategorical of most places to start. But I was like, you know what? Like, I've done other things on short notice. I've done exams on short notice. (laughs) I mean, this isn't the same, but it's similar. So, um, so yeah, I looked at the calendar. Um, I was like, June 25th looks like the best date. It's a weekend. It's the furthest away we can do this. So I immediately set in stone June 25th, 12 to 3. We're going to have speakers. We're going to have raffles. We're going to have food trucks. And um, that was like the first thing I got out. And so the first advertised location was a Granby Center, which is like the town green um, in my town. Um, and then yesterday I spoke with um, an event planner, I want to say, zoning coordinator, something like that, um, Jamie at Granby and we basically were just working it out unfortunately the town center um, is not really available just because of all the construction they're doing so 
Um, we managed to work out a deal for Sam and Brooke Park, um, which is a much bigger location. It has a full stage sound system, um, a huge green um, playscape for kids to play at, lots of space for vendors. So that was like a huge, like, Milestone. I was like, well, I was gonna say, I'm smiling as I'm looking at you because <laughs> there's so many elements to this. You know, you're 15 years old. You're a sophomore in high school. This is a lot, right? But you've also For said sure. you've done this before. You know, what goes through your mind when you're like, I'm gonna take this on? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I would say like do first, think later, which definitely isn't um, the best way to go about these things. But um, my parents are always telling me they're like, you know, you're so determined when it comes to these events, when it comes to your nonprofit, you know, um, not nonprofit organization. Um, and they're like, you know, where is the same determination for homework? <laughs> and I'm we like, all get that. And I'm like, well, I don't enjoy homework. You know, this is what I enjoy. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, definitely, I um, have had so much support from the community. I mean, Jason Hayes, I believe he's an East Granby native, and um, he's like a celebrity wig maker. He's super cool. Um, he. Um, uh, helped to run the Disarm Hate um, rally in Washington, which I believe had like over 5,000 um, rally goers. Really awesome. And he just immediately, right when I inquired, he stepped in, he messaged me, and he's been helping ever since. He's going to be um, one of the keynote speakers at the event. And I'm just really excited to you know hear more of his story because he's a really cool guy. And you mentioned joy. And when I have these conversations, I'm always really excited and, and interested to hear that. You know, you're in high school. You 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 say you have a lot of homework, but you're also <laughs> doing this amazing extracurricular. Um, what about it brings you joy? Because, of course, it kind of started from a not joyful place. But right. why, why does it bring you such happiness? Because, you know, you're smiling as you're talking about this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would say really just knowing the impact I make is lasting. And so, being able to say, you know, even maybe after I go to college, um, that this rally is still an annual event. I mean, that's really what I want to do. And I feel like my um, my gist is always to, you know, make leave a bigger impact on the world than how you came in. And so I have a um, sort of club. It's not really an official um, organization yet, just because that's pretty expensive. <laughs> um, but so it's called Lars for Elders. Um, and I... Um, started recently. I've actually gotten some media attention recently, so that's really exciting. Um, I was featured on Channel 3's Great Kids and Channel 8's Wednesday Warriors just this week. Um, and so basically what we do is our goal is to reduce loneliness in senior homes through sending cards of encouragement, joy, congratulations to senior homes. And so we've been going on for a little while, and it really all started back in 2019 when I was about 12 years old. I visited a senior home with, I want to say, like, the Cub Scouts. <laughs> and um, I just realized, I was like, they are so lonely. This is really sad. Like, it was not a good realization. And then... Um, COVID happened and I'm like it can't be much better now especially now that they can't get visits in person so I sort of did like a general Google search I looked up on social medias just to see if there were um, any like any um, letter making organizations nearby and I just I didn't really find anything I found 
a Letters for Rose chapter in Massachusetts, so I helped them out. But, you know, it just wasn't the same because it wasn't in Connecticut. What I was going to say, it sounds like a really cool organization that you started at such a young age, too. And we've only got about 30 seconds to a minute left. But I do <laughs> want to ask, you know, what do you hope our listeners take out from this conversation? You know, you've touched on organizing your first Pride event. You did Black Lives Matter uh, before. And now you're talking about another project, Letters <laughs> to Elders. You know, what do you hope they take out from this? Yeah, I mean, I hope they really understand that no matter your age, you can accomplish a lot and you shouldn't let that be barrier. And um, definitely for all the listeners listening right now or maybe later on June 25th from 12 to 3 at Sandberg Park, make sure to come out to the Granby's Got Pride Rally. We hope to see you there. You've been hearing from James Crocker. He's a sophomore at Granby Memorial High School and currently organizing the town's first ever Pride event. Thank you so much, James, for joining us today and telling us your story. Thank you for letting me come on, Catherine. Coming up next, more conversation on LGBTQ studies and its role in the classroom with Connecticut's Department of Education and a superintendent who's familiar with these conversations. Let us know what you think, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We just talked with a high school student in Granby who's organizing the town's very first community pride event. The idea was sparked by divided re- reactions from parents when they realized a Pride Month video for kids was shown to elementary school students. Now, we're hoping to dig a little deeper into that conversation on who gets to decide if LGBTQ studies should be taught in the classroom and whether or not Pride Month has a place in schools. And here to help us break that down are Irene Parisi. She's the chief academic officer at Connecticut State Department of Education and Paul Freeman, who is the superintendent of Guilford Public Schools. Thank you both of you for joining us this morning. Thank you, Catherine. And you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And Irene, I want to start with you. Does the state offer any guidance when it comes to teaching LGBTQ studies curriculum or recognizing Pride Month? Thank you, Catherine, and uh, thank you for that question. Um, What we do share are the standards and the frameworks that have been um, approved by the State Board of Education. 
And through this, this guides that local development. And in addition to that, um, which is highly recommended, is our K-12 universal curricular design principles that actually outline the phases for curriculum development that districts can use. So for example, we, um, in our model curricula that we develop, we use those same phases and we engage educators, higher education, students and parents in the development of that model curricula so that we know that all voices are at the table. And that's the work that we've been doing. And then we also provide professional development for our teacher colleagues to fully understand how, understand how to facilitate the implementation of that curriculum. Yeah. And um, we may also provide curated resources that have been vetted um, to support the implementation of content at the district level. And this is a lot of work from the state uh, perspective and coming from from your level. I want to ask you, you know, how are students and parents part of this process? You know, are they a part of this process? That's a great question. And I do believe everyone has a role in the design and development of curriculum. So what we, again, using those K-12 curricular design principles, it's important to communicate what those roles and responsibilities are up front clearly at the beginning of that process. So parents and students, community members, they may not be writing the curriculum because that requires training and, and research. However, they can be invited into the conversation so that you can clearly understand the needs, even the interest or the strengths that we need to build upon. Um, and certainly from a state department perspective, that's what we've been doing. And again, that is suggested at the district level. And there are certainly a lot of local policies um, or procedures that might be in place where um, mechanisms for parents and students to come to the table when those districts are coming together to think about what is it that we need in our curriculum. And I think Dr. Freeman can certainly um, add some more to that process. Uh, we're going to come to Dr. Freeman in a little bit, but first we want to play uh, a couple clips from the Granby Board of Education who held a meeting last week around this video. And here's what some of the community members had to say. This is Jake Brown, a former student in the Granby School District, and Mike Maranco. Growing up and going through the Granby schools, I had nothing of showing me, hey, there are trans people, there are gay people in the world. I grew up with hundreds, thousands of books, of movies, of shows, of straight characters, of, oh, the woman meets the man, they live happily ever after. That didn't turn me straight. I'm just going to put that out there. One video that says, hey, be yourself, stand up for yourself, be what makes you happy. People are people. One video. I never got that until high school. And I think putting that at a young age of showing, hey, these are the people we have in the world, this is what's around us, is something phenomenal. I'm so happy that was done because that's something I would have loved, something that would have made me happier growing up. And i just like to say I'm very disappointed in the board and school system for showing the videos that they did, not notifying the parents of the videos. We all don't receive emails or check our emails daily. Things should be sent home via hard mail. Um, not good at this public speaking thing, but... I'm very disappointed. I mean, when my daughter comes home and says that she wants to wear a shirt the next day, and Ms. Greer did say she could wear it, saying there are only two genders, because she doesn't agree with the videos that are being shown in school. These are topics to be discussed at home, not at school. And why weren't parents notified there's going to be a pride month? Nothing was ever sent home. No emails were ever sent. Nobody was ever notified there's going to be a pride month. 
we should be able to have the option to opt our students, our kids, out of it. Who are you to tell us what you're going to teach our kids? We pay taxes. We have the right to know what our kids are going to learn. Dr. Freeman, we just heard uh, from these two uh, Granby community members, and you're familiar with these discussions because in 2021, parents pushed back against a curriculum that was centered on equity, inclusion, and social justice being taught in the Guilford School District. Are these similar sentiments um, with what you heard in 2021? You know, are you still hearing the same the, the same conversations from parents and teachers, or you know, what was the central debate for you during that time? Um, yeah, I, I think it is a similar conversation, and and it's a conversation that in part is happening in Guilford. Uh, it's you know, it's happening all over the country um, in different communities. I do want to be careful, and I and I want to tease apart the the idea of curriculum. Um, I agree with everything that Irene said, but I want to point out um, that that in in Guilford years ago, and, and when the conversation started, we were not teaching a curriculum of that included critical race theory. Um, I don't think that in large part, there are school districts that are teaching curricula about LGBTQ. Um, I think that is different than saying that we create environments where individuals are recognized and welcomed and celebrated and not just tolerated in our schools. Um, and so whether a school is recognizing Women History's Month, Women's History Month or Black History Month or Hispanic Heritage Month or Pride Month, that's not teaching a pride curriculum. And it is certainly not um, uh, advancing an LGBTQ agenda, but it is putting out messages and visuals and and statements that say we know that we have lgbtq students who walk our halls and we know that we have students with same-sex parents and we welcome you and celebrate you and you have a place in this school i think what's really important around the curricular discussion is the material selection and you heard that student speaking to that we are working hard to make sure that we have materials that are used in classes where every child can see themselves represented and represented in a positive way. Um, now that doesn't necessarily mean going back and revising whole curricula, but it does mean selecting those materials really thoughtfully. And we only have about 30 seconds left, but I wanna ask you, Dr. Freeman, do you think it's important for schools to be able to provide that messages for its students? enormously. As students need to know that they're welcomed in our schools. And again, moving away from language of tolerance to the language of acceptance and celebration. Everybody is celebrated and valued in our schools. You've been hearing from Paul Freeman. He's a superintendent of Guilford Public Schools and also Irene Parisi. She's the chief academic officer at the State Department of Education. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. After the break, we're chatting with Chastin Buttigieg. He's the former teacher, writer, and advocate, and he has a new book out called I Have to Tell You Something for Young Adults. And he tells us why the story needs to be told. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. 
Chastin Buttigieg grew up in Traverse City, Michigan, and was raised in a conservative Catholic family. After graduating college, he worked as a teacher, and later he married presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg in 2018. His book, I Have to Tell You Something, was originally published in 2020 and has since been rewritten and republished as I Have to Tell You Something for Young Adults. He joined us for a conversation over Zoom to talk about his new book and message to the LGBTQ youth. Welcome, Chastin, to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Great to be with you. And so I Have to Tell You Something was originally published in 2020, and today we're actually talking about the young adult version. You completely rewrote this book for young adults. Why did you decide to do that, and what was that process like? Yeah, I I started rewriting it over two years ago, and I really wanted to write a copy of the book, I Wish I Could Travel Back in Time and Hand My Younger Self. And when I started writing it over two years ago, the political climate was not the way it is today. And so I was um, just thinking about, you know, young Chastin, what could have been helpful for him and having been around the country and having the opportunity to meet with lots of other young, especially queer people, I knew that we needed more stories like this. Um, but I had no idea <laughs> that when the book came out, this is this would be sort of the topic du jour. And how has the responses been like so far? It's been phenomenal. I think I'm coming up on 30 cities and, uh, you know, I've done the big coastal cities, which have been phenomenal. I didn't get to go on a book tour, an in-person book tour for the first one because of COVID. So I've enjoyed traveling and meeting with people. But the response, especially in redder states, I've been to Florida twice, Texas, Missouri, I'm going to Tennessee this weekend. Um, and that that response has been so um, heartening to me. Um, people are so exhausted and beaten down by the politics. And just to have that space and that community, even for an hour or two, um, is really necessary. Um, and now that it's Pride Month, I, I think folks even more are searching for that community and that belonging. And to know that um, people are fighting for them and going to show up for them in red states, too. Right. And I think there is a lot of support, right, as you're as you're saying, very hopeful, very heartening. But at the same time, we, we are still hearing voices on the other side. And as we've talked about before, you know, right now in Granby, Connecticut, there is an ongoing debate over a video that was recently shown to students. Uh, parents are very divided on whether or not the video should have been shown and if they should have been told before the video was shown. And the video was also made for kids ages 2 to 12. You know, with what you just said and uh, with what we were just talking about, how would you like to see LGBTQ plus history and studies taught in schools? And how do you think schools should recognize Pride Month? Yeah, you know, I wonder what my life would have been like had I read about people like Bayard Rustin or Marsha P. Johnson or Harvey Milk in school, had I known that there were other people like me out there who came before me right, who had made these huge strides um, politically, personally, um, but I, I had never heard of them because I was growing up in a rural conservative place where we didn't talk about LGBTQ people and I was raised to believe that something about me was wrong. That's why I kept it hidden for so long. And I think behind so many of these, you know, quote unquote controversies um, are some people still not believing that LGBTQ people are equal members of society. And you break many of these discussions down. I imagine what it would be like if the script was reversed. Would any parent be upset that a video featured straight people saying, I love being straight. I like knowing that it's okay to be straight. Um, it makes me feel good that people affirm that 
it's okay to be straight, right? Um, nobody would be pulling their kids out of school if um, there was a video shown where uh, straight people are talking about being straight because that's almost every video. So behind that are just some people who are still uncomfortable with the fact that LGBTQ people exist, even though they may not think that. Uh, they, they may not think that they themselves are, you know, bigoted or small-minded. But if you're if you're upset about the fact that there is a video that exists where you know someone is just saying, "I like to be affirmed in my identity," or something that is making it easier for people to see the light at the end of the tunnel especially young people who we know in this country are at a much higher rate of suicidal ideation, especially amongst LGBTQ people. And so behind all of this, I think, is this need to uh, humanize LGBTQ people and realize that we are, we've always been here, we will always be here, we're not going anywhere. And I believe that LGBTQ people should be treated as equal members of society. And I think you mentioned you know, comfort space, and I also wonder if if kids are so much better and adapted in in showing who they are or voicing who they are. I certainly feel like I've talked to a lot of young people, and I I always I always wonder like, man, you know, when I was your age, I can't talk about the things that you're talking about, yeah. or I can't articulate what I'm feeling as as. Um, as so like professional that these kids are able to do, and not just yeah. with their family, a lot of them are talking to the media, so I just can't imagine what's going through their minds. But you mentioned safe space, and I think for a lot of young people, schools are a safe space. You know, they have their peers, they have teachers who may support them. So how do you think schools should recognize Pride Month? Do you think schools have a space for that? Well, look, we still need a Pride Month because, as we mentioned, there are still people in this world who are trying to make it harder for LGBTQ people to exist. The data shows us that one in two trans kids will contemplate taking their life. Um, it is a known fact that in some areas of this country, it is still unsafe to be LGBTQ. Uh, I remember when I was about nine years old learning about Matthew Shepard and his murder. Uh, Matthew Shepard, who was taken in a pickup truck and left for dead, tied up to a fence post. And I was growing up around a lot of pickup trucks and fence posts. And while my life has changed, my story has changed, there are still a lot of people in pockets of the country, especially like the ones I grew up in, that are wondering if it's truly okay to be themselves. And until we can all say that, yes, LGBTQ people are equal members of society, then that's why we that's why we march. That's what Pride Month is for, to recognize that um, there is a, a portion of American citizens who are still asking for their rights, and who are still asking to be equal members of society. And back to your book, you also described multiple journeys in realizing your own identity. Can you talk about what that experience was like, especially because you also talk about certain ways that you had to hide and, and mask your true self? I wonder if that would resonate with a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I just didn't know who to be. I Some of my early uh, role models were Ellen DeGeneres on television and Will and Grace. And what I was taking from that was, you know, maybe you could be gay, but you should probably be funny. And so I really leaned into performance. I tried to make everyone feel good about my existence. So I tried to be funny. I tried to be entertaining. Um, but I was also growing up in a more rural place. We were, uh, my family was heavily involved in 4-H. So I was raising cows from a young age. Um, there's a chapter in the book titled, I'm Not a Cowboy. But yeah, I was playing all of these roles. I was just trying to figure out who to be so I could safely exist amongst everybody else, um, my peers at school or my church group or my 4-H group. And I, I just felt like for 18 years, I was just pretending 
to be many different versions of Chaston because I was afraid that if anyone found out this big secret about me, I would lose it all. And I definitely feel that resonating around the country with young people who wonder if it's okay to be themselves. And then I will meet 70, 80 year old couples um, at the signing line who still don't recognize this country, um, the progress that this country has made, and then sort of the regression that this country is experiencing. You also wrote that most often the fear of rejection or even violence pushes people further into the closet and forces them to hide their truest self from those who don't believe that LGBTQ plus people are equal citizens, worthy of being treated equally and with dignity. So Chastin, I want to ask, how do you think homophobia gets internalized? And in your experience, what was the result of that or the consequences of that? Yeah, well, you know how we were just talking about sort of this newer generation kind of wondering why the adults are so bothered by someone that might be LGBTQ or wondering why it's such a huge deal. And I think not even for folks in our generation, but for an older generation, we were taught that being LGBTQ is bad. Um, when you, for me, spent I spent 18 years of my life believing that something about me was wrong or broken, um, asking God why he would have done this to me and wondering whether or not there was truly a path forward for me. So when you are constantly surrounded by that hate and you soak up that hate for almost two decades of your life, you kind of start to hate yourself. And so much of that experience busting down the closet door was, yes, feeling the freedom of being able to be myself, but also coming to terms with the fact that I was allowed to love myself and I really hadn't loved myself for almost 20 years. And so that homophobia seeps in and it, it tells you that you are unworthy of all of those things, um, which is why it's so important to tell the people in your life that they are loved unconditionally and from a very early age so that we don't go throughout our life wondering if we're going to lose all of the people who say they love us once they find out you know, who we truly are, once we are able to share our most authentic selves with them. And one of the central parts of your book was talking about your experience coming out to your parents, you know, speaking of being in a space to do that yeah. and, and being told certain things. You know, this was a conversation you first had with your mom. Can you describe yeah. to us how that conversation went? Yeah. I, well, I didn't really have the guts to come out to my parents face to face. So I wrote a letter and I remember packing my bags and um, I, I walked into the living room and I handed my mom the letter uh, and I apologized. I remember saying, I'm so sorry. And then I left. Um, I, I got my car and I drove away. And one of the really important stories that I get to tell on the on the book tour is how you know, after a couple of months of crashing on my friend's couches or floors or in my car, my parents called me home. Um, they wanted to keep me alive. They cared about me and keeping me alive and my health and safety more than the opinions of their friends or their church group or their community. Um, and it's that unconditional love that truly saved my life because I was not in a good place. I, I didn't really see much of a path forward. Um, so I'm so grateful that I get to share their story of progress and their allyship, willing to learn and unlearn some things because they cared more about the, their love for their child um, than anything else. You talked about how your mom had a hard time accepting that you were gay in the beginning, and but you described her as well-meaning. So can you help us understand yeah. what you meant by that? Because I think it, it really points out to the fact that acceptance for some people, it's a process um, and it's an ongoing mm -hmm. one at that, right? 
Yeah. So I have always tried to, especially in my, you know, public life and political work, I have always tried to um, think about building a bridge for other people to get to the right side of history. And I know sometimes we just want to like take the two by four and whack someone over the head with it. But I try to focus on laying the two by four down and building the bridge. And my parents were so loving. They were like the loud uh, well, especially my mom, like the loud, goofy mom. She brought snacks to all the football games and the baseball games. And she was always there on opening night for a play. And, you know, my parents were the ones that always hosted cast parties or, you know, uh, um, tailgate parties. They were just so giving and loving. But we didn't talk about LGBTQ people. We never talked about it. And so I always assumed that that love was conditional, that should they find out that I was gay because of everything I was learning in school and church was telling me that I was wrong and broken and, you know, destined for hell. Um, I knew that once I came out that I would lose them and they were really, I, they were well-meaning people, but we just never talked about accepting LGBTQ people. And so my parents too, their world was, their world was shaken as well, because like I write in the book, nobody hopes for a gay kid. That's what I thought. But what my parents proved to me was that the love and the safety of your child is worth so much more than maybe the dreams that they had of me, you know, having a wife and kids, you know, in the white picket fence. Well, now I just have a husband and kids um, and the minivan. Um, so they had the, they had to unlearn a lot of things that I think a lot of people need to unlearn. And that starts with meeting people where they're at, having the opportunity to hear their story, learn from them, empathize with them, walk a little bit in their shoes and see that, the only things that LGBTQ people want are the same things that everybody else wants. Love, safety, community, the right to exist, the freedom to walk down the sidewalk and not be afraid that you'll get murdered or that, you know, it's not okay to hold the hand of the person that you love. Um, I, I hear from a lot of teachers who who have mentioned that students who have who have students have said that if if the teachers identify as LGBTQ plus and are open to it, it helps the students a lot in terms of acceptance and being themselves yeah. and being comfortable in the classroom. So I would love to know what are your thoughts about LGBTQ plus teachers carrying that burden on top of everything else? But it also yeah. sounds like a case by case basis to me. You know, what do you think? Everything. Everything that I talk about, it's important to preface that safety should always come first. Mm. You know, you should only come out if it's truly safe to um, only have conversations with people about acceptance and equality if it is truly safe to. And for other people, you know, you can't just say, like, come out of the closet. You know, people are counting on you because it might not be safe for them. When I was going to high school, I now know that some of the teachers I had in high school are gay or, or were gay. Um I guess still are gay, <laughs> but they weren't out when I was in high school. And I sometimes think about what that would have meant for me walking down the hallways, getting called the slurs, getting shoved into lockers, you know, getting pushed down to the floor in gym class. Um, had I seen someone, you know, happily partnered and they had a career and I would have had someone to look up to uh, a role model, but I had none and they were terrified of losing their jobs. Um and, you know, when I was a teacher in the classroom, it was never a, a, a part of my identity, you know, that I felt like I was advertising. But there was a picture of, you know, my husband behind my desk next to pictures of my dogs and, 
you know, all of the other little knickknacks that you put behind your desk as a teacher um, in the hopes that, you know, somebody might see that and know like, oh, well, look at him. He went to college. He got married. He has, you know, a dog and he's doing well. And that just means a lot to someone to see, to look up and see someone that made it out, you know. At the end of your book, you offer a list of questions for teachers and parents. And one of those questions is, should LGBTQ plus people have to come out to their peers and communities? Yeah. Related, yeah. literally, what we we're just talking about. You know, What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think you should only come out if you want to come out. Like, that's your information. That's your private information. But also, like, straight people don't come out. You know, straight people don't have to come out. They don't have to work up the courage to share this information about them, wondering whether or not they're going to lose their friends or lose their family or lose their jobs or their housing or their security. And so the idea is that you don't have to tell people. Also, you don't have to have a coming out party or you don't have to write the letter or you don't have to sit your family down and tell them because that is your information. And I felt like coming out, especially for my generation, was sort of like a confession. Like, here's this piece of information I have, and it and it belongs to the world, and so it is my obligation to share it. And I disagree. I think we put too much pressure on people to talk about, you know, something that belongs to them. And sadly, we have to end this conversation soon, but I do want to oh, ask no. you, I know, we're having such a good time. <laughs> I want to ask you a last question, just um, is there a message or is there something that you would like to share with our listeners or just with young people too in general? Uh, what what do you hope that they, they get out from this book or even just from this conversation, something yeah. that you would like to say to them? Well, for young people, one, I'm so sorry on behalf of all the adults that some people are focused on making your life harder right now rather than easier. And for the adults, please tell your kids that you love them unconditionally. Even if you think you're the kindest, biggest hearted person, um, unless you have sat them down and told them, I will love you no matter what, whether you're gay, straight, bi, trans, whether you want to be you know, a football player, a mathematician. I will love you unconditionally. I will always be here for you. That conversation can take 10 seconds and it can truly change and save lives. Well, thank you so much, Chastin, for joining us today. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Happy Pride. That was Chastin Buttigieg, New York Times bestselling author, teacher, and advocate. He will be appearing at the Ridgefield Playhouse in conversation with Harvey Firestein and Richie Jackson tonight at 8. You can find a link to that event and to his book on our website at ctpublic.org slash where we live. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening. <laughs>